So just to recap, over the past several weeks, we have been going through the People of Promise series, which takes us through the story of Joshua. And we've been looking at the different promises throughout. But not only that, we've been looking at the hope that continues to exist for us, even now in the 21st century. Today, we're going to be diving into Joshua 10, verses 1 to 15. And it's entitled in, the, in many of the Bibles, uh, Bible translations, The Sun Stands Still. And I confess that that was my preliminary working title for the message today. But as I dug a little deeper into the text, I had this great sense that maybe this title didn't quite fit. And I think you might understand why as we get a little deeper into it. I want to start by asking a question. Has anybody here ever felt ganged up upon? You know, um, been in a situation where it's either physical or verbal. Somebody's kind of come at you in opposition. And it, it can be pretty intimidating. But imagine when there's a significant power differential, when it's even two or three or four or five on one. You hardly stand a chance. For most people, the natural response in a case like this is to be afraid and to try and enlist some help to even the playing field. When I was in grade eight, there was these two girls, and they didn't like me very much. They said some really mean things to me, cruel things. And they threatened me and even intimidated me. One day, it even became physical. And this one day, when school had ended, I was pretty sure these girls would be waiting for me. But fortunately, my older cousin went to the same school. And he was older, he was stronger, he was pretty athletic, and he was even trained in martial arts. I was fortunate, too, that my last class of the day was in a ground floor classroom, and it had windows from which I could see the entrance to the school. So I could see my cousin as he was leaving for the day. And I jumped out the window, and I went over to get him because I needed help, because I was afraid, and I questioned my ability to defend myself, because this was way pre my Dove Taekwondo days. So with my cousin on my side, my fear dissipated, and I knew I would likely be okay. I'm thinking that the Gibeonites in our story today might be able to relate to that, only their experience was on a much, much larger scale, and there were so many more moving parts. Just to back up a little bit, you might remember from Pastor Chris's sermon last week, um, we were talking about how the Gibeonites were fearful of Joshua and his troops. Everyone knew of the harem or other destruction that had occurred at, at Jericho and at Ai. And so when the five hill country kings came together to wage war against the Gibeonites, they did this because the Gibeonites had made a peace treaty with Joshua and with the Israelites. And so they wanted to kind of attack them and punish them for, for doing this. And they were also 
afraid of having or falling to a similar fate. So in chapter 10, the story picks up. We have the king of Jerusalem, and he's a guy by the name of Adonai Zedek. He's sounding the alarm, and rightfully so. Why? Because now this great city of Gibeon, whose men were known as good, good fighters, as we read in verse 2, he had rallied the support of Joshua and company. And from previous battle victories, we know that Joshua and the Israelites also brought along God's judgment. So what does Adonai Zedek do? He calls these four other kings to help him attack Gibeon. And suddenly, we have a five-on-one. And Gibeon sends out a rather desperate plea to their new allies for help. And if you note in verse 6, note where Joshua was camped out. They were at Gilgal. It says the Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal. Now there's some debate over the exact location of Gilgal, but what I think is more important is that it was, it became like a home base for the Israelites. The Israelites weren't a nomadic people who would um, set up camp as they went. They, would, they were camped out of Gilgal, they'd go out for battle, they would come back, they would go out, and they would come back. A few weeks back, I had preached on Joshua 4, and it talked about the stones of remembrance. And Gilgal is where those stones of remembrance were. Part of the instruction from the Lord to Joshua was to take 12 men, have 12 men take 12 stones from the center of the Jordan River. And there is one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were to set those stones up in this camp at Gilgal. And those stones were to serve as a reminder of the Israelites' identity, but also as faithfulness, a reminder of the faithfulness of God to his covenant people. And it's a pretty safe bet that as Joshua was leaving Gilgal, he probably walked right past those stones. And don't you think that the Israelites might have needed that reminder of how powerful their God was going into this situation where we've got these five hill country kings on Gibeon? I think there's a fairly good chance that that was the case. When we move into verse 9, we learn that Joshua strategically leads an all-night march in an effort to take these five kings and their armies by surprise. And here's where a very key thing happens. In verse 10, it says, The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. And as these armies were fleeing, they were thrown into an even further confusion. We're told that the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more people died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. But I really want you to notice one more thing Joshua had done. And this is from verse 12. In verse 12 it says, Joshua had said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ayalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, and the nation avenged itself on its enemies. Following this prayer of intercession, it said, 
The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a whole day. Now remember, just a bit ago, I said many Bibles title this passage, The Sun Stands Still. But because of that, I figured that this was a crucial element of the story, and we might need to understand a little bit more about it. And so I started to search for examples and to search for explanations of what had actually happened. And you know what I found? There are a lot of really smart Bible scholars out there, and there are almost just as many explanations for what happened. One of the explanations was that somehow, because the, the sun is actually already standing still, that the earth somehow slowed its rotation, and that in this, it gave the appearance of the sun standing still. There's another explanation that perhaps there was an eclipse. I uh, even harassed my Old Testament prof because he's been at this a lot longer than me. But you know what? There was no definitive answer. No definitive answer except for one. And that's that no one disagrees that something truly miraculous happened this day. But if we get hung up on the details of exactly what happened, and we focus solely on the fact that the sun appeared to stand still, we're getting it wrong, and we're missing the point. Because the how matters much less than the who. Let me be clear. I believe this miracle had something to do with Joshua's prayer. And we'll look at that in a little more detail in a bit. But... I don't think that Joshua gets to claim the victory. God does. And it's God's victory. The glory goes to him. In verse 9, it was the Lord who threw the five kings and their armies into confusion. Verse 11, it was the Lord who hurled large hailstones that claimed more lives than the sword. Verse 12, it was the Lord who gave the Amorites over to Israel. It was the Lord who, by whatever means, delayed the sun going down, thus giving the Israelites more time to defeat the Amorites. And by the way, if you don't believe this account, look at verse 13. Verse 13 tells us the miracle is also recorded in the book of Jashar. The book of Jashar is not one of the 66 books of the Bible. But it is known for, um, for containing heroic stories and major events. And it's also referenced in 2 Samuel 1.18. And when we consider all of this, Psalm 24.8 comes to mind. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So ultimately, the battle belongs to the Lord. However, that doesn't mean we're off the hook. Somehow, in God's great plan, he allows people to play a role. He uses fallible, weak, and perfect humans. And he, he does this for his kingdom purposes. He does this to write this incredible story. And Joshua is a prime example I mentioned earlier that I believe the miracle in this passage had something to do with Joshua's prayer. If you think prayer is powerless and makes no difference, 
please pay attention and take note. First, we'd already talked about how Joshua had come from Gilgal where the stones of remembrance were. Leaving the camp for battle, he probably, like I said, walked right past them. And so he would have had that power and faithfulness of God fresh in the back of his mind. He would have remembered how God had delivered the Israelites by parting the waters of the Jordan River. This in turn would have bolstered his faith for the big ask of the Lord in the current battle. So Joshua prayed in faith and with expectation that God would actually do something. Second, Joshua listened to the Lord's instruction and he acted in obedience. Third, in making this ask in the presence of Israel, Joshua is showing humility because he's acknowledging his need before God and people. He doesn't present as one with an ego, as one who can do it all on his own. And this is exactly how we ought to be approaching God as well. Fourth, and this is probably the most significant, because of the relationship that Joshua had with the Lord when he prayed, he prayed in alignment with God's will. When Joshua approached God in this way, Note God's response. He heard him. Verse 14 says, The Lord listened to a human being. As Francis Chan would say, Are you kidding me? The God of the universe, the one who spoke creation into being, the same God bent his ear towards man. And when it says that the Lord listened, it doesn't just mean that he heard Joshua. It means Joshua's prayer compelled him to act. Joshua's prayer compelled him to do something. I remember attending a prayer, uh, a prayer meeting one morning led by Arthur Doubledam, and he said something there that will always stick with me. And I can't remember if this was his original thought or if it had been read from a book, but he said, in prayer, we move the hand that moves the world. Doesn't that blow you away? Prayer matters. But there's something else I want to point out because I believe it's really important for us to be aware of. The battle taking place in Joshua, like all battles, is not just a physical one. In this story, the enemy armies were rebellious and sinful people. Their hearts were hardened and they had no desire to walk in God's ways. And we re need to remember that ultimately, the struggle is not against flesh and blood. The battle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. And this is not a battle that any human effort can conquer. We need rescue, and we need deliverance. In leading Israel to victory over her enemies and into possession of the promised land, Joshua offered one type of rescue and deliverance. But really, his story points to Jesus, a second Joshua, who offered an even better salvation. In fact, Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. Jesus brings salvation through a different kind of battle 
Not one with Jericho or with the Amorites, but with the powers of sin and death and Satan. Jesus defeated the enemy by living a perfect life. And then out of love, he went to the cross and died in our place to pay the penalty for our sinfulness. He was buried, but three days later, he rose again. Even death could not hold him. Now, like Joshua, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, leads his people in the battle. But this is the battle against the power of darkness and sin. My friends, it was never about the sun. It was always about God's son. And all the glory be to him. I hope that if you li- as you've listened today, you've been able to grasp even a fraction of how much God loves his children, of how much you are loved by God. I spent a lot of years getting that up here, but it was a little bit slower to get it here. And sometimes, if I'm honest, my heart needs a little reminding. Doesn't yours? Now, going forward, how can we apply what we've learned from Joshua in the battle of our lives? Let me offer a few possibilities. We take a look at our stones of remembrance before heading out to battle as a means of increasing our faith for the current situation. We pray in faith and with expectation that God will not only hear us, but do something. We listen to the Lord's instruction and act in obedience. We act in humility. I am a rookie preacher, and I have notes up here, and you probably notice that I stick fairly close to them. But I'm compelled to pause and say something about humility. The opposite of humility is pride. And I want to suggest that this might be a problem for some of us, maybe a lot of us. Sometimes we want to appear a certain way because we want people to notice us or think of us a certain way. But really, we should be living for an audience of one. Because it's God's opinion. That's the only opinion that matters. Sometimes, whether it be in church or whether it be in the world, we like to try and work our way up a ladder somehow and to gain powers of position and importance, maybe a title. But you know what God says? God says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He dem- Jesus demonstrates this with his life. Jesus was a servant to all, and that's the heart attitude that reflects the Father. Moving on. We need to seek a close relationship with God so that our prayers might be in alignment with his will. We need to remember who the real enemy is, and we need to remember whose battle it ultimately is. I'm just going to Invite the worship team to come back up as we close this off. You know, until 
Jesus returns or calls us home, there's a pretty good chance that life won't be smooth sailing. The next time a battle comes your way, how might you face it differently if you keep Joshua's story in the back of your mind? What would it be like to have full confidence that the Lord was fighting for you? Because that is exactly what he is doing. He's doing exactly that. Reality is, you are his beloved, just as the Israelites were. And he is fighting for you. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are always fighting for us. We thank you that you never change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, would you impress that upon our hearts? In your name we pray, amen.